Welcome back to Cash's Corner. There's so much to cover this week, I'm just going to let Jan take it. There's this curious figure that we're familiar with from the time of uh, Russiagate, the Russiagate investigation, a certain Russian oligarch named Oleg Deripaska, mm -hmm. who's suddenly back in the news. And he has been having a financial relationship with a quite important uh, FBI uh, official. The other thing that is on my mind is this, you know, more of these classified documents coming mm -hmm. to the fore. And uh, Miranda Devine finding a very curious email that she remembered from her deep work on the Hunter Biden laptop that looked unlike any other. And we should talk about that. For starters, let's remind everybody who is Oleg Deripaska. Yes, that's a good place to start. Oleg Deripaska, a Russian aluminum magnate, which means he is a multi, multi, multi billionaire in American dollars. I think as it lasted when I checked, he was the third or fourth richest person in Russia. And he's a very close confidant and ally to Vladimir Putin. So we kind of know how that circle works. You're a close ally of Putin. You're worth billions of dollars. You are basically doing Putin's bidding at a certain point around the world stage. During the Russiagate investigation, we came across Oleg Deripaska's name for a number of reasons. But the main one was that Oleg Deripaska was in communication um, with Christopher Steele. And not only was he in communication with Christopher Steele, in our reports and in our findings, we showed how he wanted and did in fact pay Christopher Steele for all of the Russia work that Christopher Steele was doing. Why was Oleg Deripaska, a Russian aluminum magnate, who was not, by the way, in the United States of America, in the continental United States of America, paying this random former MI6 British intelligence guy? And when we talk pay, when a billionaire pays, it's quite a large sum of money. What was their interest? Who told them to do that? A lot of these questions we tried to answer, and unfortunately because we could not get Oleg Deripaska to sit down for deposition or even a phone call with our committee at the time, we couldn't directly ask them. Now, he had a lawyer in the United States of America. So for purposes of our show, Adam Waldman in 2009 registered as the American foreign agent for Oleg Deripaska. And based on our investigation, the best we can conclude was that he was also as acting under an attorney-client relationship with Oleg Deripaska. And we, you know, I remember off the top of my head, we had a couple of back and forth with him and we just never could get a sit down because he, Deripaska, was in Russia. And it's not like he was coming over here soon. And his attorney wanted a bunch of assurances as to not just his safety, but more importantly, that he wouldn't be prosecuted or investigated. We found that interesting. Oleg Deripaska would later go on in 2018 to be sanctioned by the Trump administration. And what that means is when you sanction an individual on behalf of the United States government, you are saying this person is essentially a criminal and cannot do business with any enterprise in the United States of America, nor can they use the United States banking system, which as you know, is the global banking system. That's a pretty heavy um, strike against any individual, especially a Russian magnate um, in the aluminum industry who probably wants to sell his aluminum here and everywhere else that American banks are used. But if that weren't bad enough, I'll fast forward and then I'll jump back. In 2022, Oleg Deripaska was criminally charged for violating the sanctions that were placed on him. So now the United States federal government took it one step further and said, you're such a bad character, we are preventing you from doing business. What did he do? He circumvented that and tried to do business criminally. They caught him and he got charged for that. 
That's Oleg Deripaska. But let's take the tape back a little bit. And just just really quickly, what were the initial sanctions about? Like, what was the what was the reason? Uh, the reasoning was that he was associated with criminal activity, nefarious activity, and the source of his money uh, was tied to basically in order to sanction an individual, we're just talking generically, you have to run through a number of wickets. The The State Department has theirs, the Treasury has theirs, and at the White House, we, we quarterback the whole operation. And we basically say this person is committing unlawful acts or about to commit unlawful acts, and we don't want him to use the United States banking system or the United States of America and United States co companies or our citizens to advance that criminal enterprise. And it's a very high burden. It's not like you can sanction just anyone. So when we or the United States government on behalf of anyone sanctions someone, a lot of work has gone into that. So it took a lot to get this guy to the threshold of being sanctioned. And I'm guessing that's what his attorney was trying to fight against when we, back in 2017 and 18, were doing the Russiagate investigation. So let's go back to that time. So who else was Oleg Deripaska uh, in touch with? We already talked about Christopher Steele, who, as we all know, is the author of the infamous dossier that has been totally discredited. And so let's put those questions aside because that's sort of old history and our audience knows it well. The other matter that probably no one knows about or very few people is that Oleg Deripaska's attorney, the gentleman I named earlier, was in direct communication with Senator Mark Warner in 2017. And we have the text messages. Oleg Deripaska's attorney was in direct communication with one of the highest ranking members of the United States Senate and the highest Democrat on the Senate Intel Committee at the time because he wanted to talk to, he, Warner, wanted to talk to and have conversations about Christopher Steele, the guy Oleg Deripaska was paying to help perpetuate the Russiagate scandal. And if that weren't enough, in March of 2017, Oleg Deripaska was texting his pal, and that's not my verbiage, you can see him in the text messages, how they are banding about being such good friends and whatnot. They are talking very specifically about Warner setting up a meeting with Oleg Deripaska himself. And the rest of the text message chain talks about the material that Christopher Steele can bring to the table, how it's going to be bad for the Democratic Party. And these are text messages that are just kind of explosive, in my opinion, that they, the Senate Intel Committee, put out a statement saying, you know, Mr. Uh, Senator Warner disclosed this to us, these text messages, we, we basically find no there there, to borrow some uh, verbiage that's in the parlance right now. And my opinion is these questions need to be revisited. And we haven't even gotten to Charles McGonigal. We'll get there. We now have these text messages that show unequivocally that a sitting senator was texting the attorney for a Russian uh, aluminum magnate who would become criminally sanctioned and later charged for violating those sanctions. That same attorney was trying to set up a conversation with Christopher Steele himself back in 27, 2018. And so those questions need to be answered again. In, in other words, like why, why was, were these conversations, why were these attempts being made? What were these conversations about? And so forth. That's and why was, he, why was he entertaining them in the political nature that these text messages were fashioned? Talking about how it's, you know, how this is going to harm the Democratic Party and the DNC and how this attorney literally said, oh, Mr. Warner, you're still my favorite senator in one of the text messages. How is that that we can just let that go? We can't. But no, we haven't even gotten to Charles McGonigal yet. Right. And that's the crazy part. Well, um, well, so Charles McGonigal, let's let, let, let's just briefly mention him. He was the head of counterintelligence uh, in New York for the FBI. Yeah. So let's bolt this back on and it'll make more sense as to why I think the whole text messages involving Senator Warner are so important. So Charles McGonigal 
was the head of the counterintelligence program at the largest FBI field office in the world. So he was literally the number one counterintel guy outside of Washington, D.C. headquarters for the FBI. That's a pretty senior post, Jan. I mean, this guy, it's been publicly reported, had worked on the East Africa t uh, embassy bombings, had worked on world trade, had worked on other terror, massive, massive national security cases, had worked on a lot of matters inside and outside of Russia related to Russian activities. And what most people don't know is that he and Peter Strzok were buddies and they were running bits of the Russiagate investigation together. So now we have the entry of Charles McGonigal in 2017, circa 2017, 2018, who we now know it's confirmed he was actively working on the Carter Page investigation and the Carter Page FISA. And so why is this guy important? Well, it turns out Oleg Deripaska would go on to pay Charles McGonigal a quarter million dollars uh, to basically launder money and continue his sanctions violation program. They have now charged Charles McGonigal with a felony, I think at least one count, if not two counts, a conspiracy, a money laundering count, and another substantive count, I can't recall, but we can put the indictment up, which has finally been unsealed for our audience. The indictment says, we are charging this individual with criminal activity that began in 2017, Jan, when Charles McGonigal was still the highest ranking CI employee of the FBI in the New York City field office. Who was working on the Russiagate investigation? Who was getting courted then by Oleg Deripaska, whose attorney was in touch with Mark Warner about Christopher Steele and about Oleg Deripaska? So these aren't coincidences, Jan, and the timing of the release of this indictment. As I said, you know, as a former federal prosecutor, I think um, most of our audience know this, but when they say unseal an indictment, all that means is they had charged this individual some time ago. But they seal it because normally what happens is there's a uh, investigatory purpose behind that. Say you don't want someone to flee the jurisdiction. Say you have a conspiracy case you're building. There's other co-defendants because once you make an indictment public, everybody finds out about it. So, you know, when I used to run these types of large terrorism prosecutions, we would sometimes seal them. You know, sometimes you seal them for six, seven, eight months, up to a year, sometimes longer. Why did the DOJ wait so long to unseal this indictment until this week, literally this week in 2023 for criminal activity that began in 2017? That's a question that Merrick Garland has to answer for the American people. And he cannot be hide behind, oh, this is an ongoing criminal investigation. As I've always said, there are no coincidences in the United States government when it comes to this type of activity. I have to ask you about this sealing. Uh, um, was this actually sealed from uh, John Durham as well? So this is a great point that literally no one has ever brought up. Why didn't John Durham bring this prosecution? Every time I do media, Jan, people keep asking me, where's John Durham? John Durham was supposed to have been the special counsel to investigate all matters associated with and including the inception of the Russiagate investigation and the FBI and DOJ personnel involved with fraudulently obtaining a FISA document, a FISA warrant at the, at the court and lying to federal officers and hiding information, etc. This guy, Charles McGonigal, falls right into that outline parameter uh, for John Durham. But he didn't bring this case. Other attorney, yes, assistant. Okay, United so I guess my question is, is it possible that somehow it was hidden from him? 
It's possible it was, it's possible, of course, especially with this DOJ, that it was hidden from him. It's also possible, knowing John Durham, he picked up on it and referred it out for some unknown reason. Uh, maybe the, the crimes that they are going to branch, that they are going to offshoot from this indictment go too far for John Durham sort of to follow. So that's also a reason. But I'm really interested to see if this was on John Durham's radar, because if it was, that would answer the question that people have been trying to answer for like the last six months. What's John Durham doing? And if he's the reason that this FBI agent was charged, then that is a massive victory in terms of holding people accountable uh, for the corrupt activities that date back to Russiagate. So those questions are only going to be answered at the, at the new Congress, as we've talked about. And maybe when John Durham is finally finished with whatever he's doing, he can answer those questions for us, either in his report or his testimony. But to me, you know, my gut, my, my gut draw is that it was John Durham. And he probably referred it out and said this for reasons I can't think of right now, said, hey, you DOJ can actually handle this. Why don't you bring this prosecution? But it still doesn't answer the question as to the unsealing of the indictment and its timeliness right in the middle of the Biden document scandal. Why do you think it's now? I think that the DOJ and the FBI are under such heat for the two-tier system of justice that they have manufactured. And if we just look at only two things, the Mar-a-Lago investigation and the Biden classified document investigation, not even getting to Hunter Biden, just those two things, the American public, a large portion of which were lied to by the fake news media, are finally seeing that, wait a second, you guys aren't acting like cops and lawyers. You guys are acting like you're rigging the system. And they, the FBI and DOJ, wanted a narrative out there that they could put to the American public and say, look, we're going after our own. We charged this guy, Charles McGonigal, who is at the heart of the Russiagate probe. We took him down. They want to be able to have that narrative out there. And I think they needed a headline to level the playing field, the accusations that I think have been well-founded against them, that they are operating a system of justice based on who the target is and not based on what the law and the facts are. Well, and just, you know, kind of as we finish up this part, you know, what a curious character Deripaska is. I mean, he's kind of been kind of on all sides of things almost at different times. Well, the one thing I, and, and this is something that is just sort of my hunch from my time in Intel and my time running sources and my time doing these types of prosecutions. Was Oleg Deripaska ever on the FBI payroll? Was he a confidential human source? I'm thinking, yeah. You know, people are gonna be like, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. But look who the FBI put on their payroll so far that we found out about these matters. Obviously, Christopher Steele and the likes of Jaffe. And I've always been the first to say, confidential sources provide an invaluable tool to investigations. I used to run a lot of them. But lately, they've been used, it seems, to cover up the FBI's corruption. Christopher Steele, case in point. And we know a slew of other individuals that the FBI used, I would say shadily, uh, during the Russiagate investigation to advance a political agenda, which is what you're never supposed to use the FBI and confidential human sources for. And we've talked about what we think about January 6th and how they would probably use confidential human sources there. Actually, we know they did. We just don't know who they were yet because that information hasn't come out. So now I'm thinking Oleg Deripaska at some time, whether it was the FBI or another agency, was working with the United States government. He got sideways with this agreement and they ended up coming out and criminally sanctioning him and then charging him. Um, but I think that is a question that must be answered. 
especially if we have high-ranking senators and other individuals wanting to talk to Oleg Deripaska in the heart, in the middle of the biggest oversight investigation in modern U.S. history as it relates to Russiagate. These are questions we are owed answers to, and we have a right to ask them, because not because we're conspiratorial, but because of the track record laid down by the FBI and DOJ when it comes to the use and application of confidential human sources. It seems unlikely, though, that you're going to get a you know, a debriefing with Oleg Deripaska. <laughs> I probably won't get a debriefing with Oleg Deripaska, but all I want are the documents that show us who Oleg Deripaska is. Did he have any engagement with U.S. law enforcement authorities ever? And if so, what was the depth of that engagement? Was he paid? Was he given beneficial treatment? Did he violate that agreement? Because people would be like, oh, if he's a confidential human source, he's never going to violate that agreement. You know who's a confidential human source that violated the FBI terms agreement? Christopher Steele. And that was after they paid him a ton of money. So it happens a lot, unfortunately. And with this FBI, it's happened far too much. That's why these questions have to be asked, asked and answered. And again, I go back to it. I think the only place we can get that answer from is not the DOJ and FBI, but from the new committee in Congress on the weaponization of the federal government. You know, I think the membership of that committee has now been officially announced. Kind of as we're taping, yeah. I think it was last night. So it, it seems like a lot of people that are into doing some serious investigations yeah, I per you know, we're not going to get into the names, but I personally know a lot of those people, if not all of them. I've worked with them. They are serious, serious-minded folks who are tired of the DOJ and FBI and IC abuse and corruption. They are well-versed in it, which, in my opinion, makes them the ideal choices to run it because it's not something they're going to see for the first time and say, oh, okay, this was a one-off. They were involved in uncovering the biggest scandal in modern FBI DOJ history, a criminal enterprise. So I think those folks are well, well suited and situated to be asking these questions. And, you know, and I know I'm going to be reaching out to some of them to say, hey, maybe you want to take a look at this. On this show, we have a habit of trying to put things in perspective so people can see them for what they are. And I know we just talked extensively about Senator Warner, Oleg Deripaska, the attorney, Christopher Steele, Charles McGonagall. Well, what if this happened? What if Devin Nunes, as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, running the Russiagate investigation, texted the attorney for Oleg Deripaska, asking him to meet with Christopher Steele, who Oleg Deripaska was paying a lot of money for, at the same time while Oleg Deripaska was recruiting um, Charles McGonagall to essentially be a Russian asset and, and conduct criminal activity in violation of the United States Code. What would the media do with that fact pattern? Because in my opinion, and I believe you share this, the investigation and the, and the analysis of the corruption or the activities or the lawfulness or unlawfulness should not change based on who the people are and who the targets are. And we've always done a good job, I think, of keeping it a level playing field and calling people out when they don't. I think the mainstream media is as liable on this one as anyone else for giving everyone a hall pass, but um, hopefully it gets a closer look now. Let's look at these, uh, cla you know, classified documents keep on giving, it seems. You know, there's more <laughs> More were found uh, of, uh, you know, in, in Joe Biden's possession. There was even some found in former Vice President uh, Pence's possession. Yeah. But the thing that I want to draw uh, attention to is this 
find that Miranda Miranda Devine, only someone who had sort of combed through the, the, the depths of the Hunter Biden laptop could have sort of found this, I think. But this very curious email that where, you know, Hunter Biden all of a sudden has this in-depth understanding of the realities of U.S. foreign policy yeah. and so forth. And he's writing to his friend, Devin Archer, okay, you're laughing, but, you know, so, I know. so, so, I mean, what, what, what's, what's your reaction to this? You're right. I'm laughing only because we've gone so far beyond absurd and criminal that the only place to set your mind at some points is to laugh at it because our government won't even take it seriously. And where my mind's at, look, in the last episode, I think we, you and I did a great job covering the document scandal itself and the two-tier system of justice and how we have been saying all along that more and more and more documents at more and more locations are going to be found. And that happens to be the case. And I still think there's going to be even more found. And not just at Pence's you know, house. I think probably you're going to hear some point soon, President Obama's going to say, hey, there's an inadvertent filing of a classified document in some warehouse that of papers he took with him when he left. Because I think everybody's doing their due diligence right now because it's kind of spreading like wildfire. But the focal point of this conversation is that document that you cited. And it wasn't an actual government document, right? With the traditional classified markings from the FBI or CIA or DOD saying X, Y, and Z about the Ukraine and Russia or the CCP or what have you, right? Just a casual email. Just a casual email. But that doesn't mean there wasn't a theft of classified information. All someone has to do is look at classified information and write a summary of it, and that is a theft of classified information. It's a mishandling of classified information. But just it's to be crime. clear, we don't know that that's what happened here. Well, I don't know because I haven't had access to the underlying documents. But what I will tell you is from my experience in classified information from being the deputy director of national intelligence, the information and the bulleted information specifically in that email is information, in my opinion, that could only have come from a classified source and classified document. It's not like Hunter Biden had access to that style and depth and detail of information as it relates to the Ukraine. There's no way Hunter Biden, who has never worked in government, as far as I can tell, um, after he got discharged from the Navy, he didn't have a security clearance. He had no, as far as I know, agreement or arrangement with the United States government to go do this work on their behalf. So he now, we now know, of course, that there was the pay for play over there. There was the firing of the Ukrainian prosecutor um, and that Joe Biden, when he was vice president, went over there and said, if this guy's not fired, literally, I'm going to take our U.S. money and leave. And he was fired within hours. So the questions that have to be asked are not just what we talked about as a document, but does that document relate to the pay for play? Does it relate to the advisory contracts that Hunter Biden engaged with, with the Ukraine and their companies and their subsidiaries to get paid in upwards of 50 dollars to $100,000 a month? That's another separate issue because that's the underlying crime is the mishandling and, and theft of classified information. But if you used it to commit a conspiracy or crime and illegality, that's another crime. And so for me, you know, you and I both know Miranda, she does great work. And, and this find is really one that allows us to take a document and hold it up to the world and say, look, we can point to this. While we can't tell you with certainty that everything in this document is, or at one time was classified, a lot of professionals like myself are commenting on the specificity in that document to say, there's no way it wasn't. So Miranda's point was basically that this 
email was just really out of character. This was not in Hunter's normal style, which he had become incredibly familiar with. It just looked something very out of place, something that was, you know, copying information that came from somewhere else. And Jan, yeah. where did this email come from? Hunter Biden's laptop. This document has been known to the FBI for years. So what do they do? That, in my opinion, and I think it'll come out later, again, I've said this repeatedly, that's the origination of the President Biden document scandal investigation involving classified information. Mm. Because when an investigator sees that type of information, what you're supposed to do, what you must do is say, what are the origination documents that this information was based in and how did he get it? Mm -hmm. And when you think Hunter Biden, you immediately think his dad, a former United States Senator, former vice president, a sitting president. Of course he had access to classified information. So what do you do? You start going around and pulling threads and you say, okay, where was that document? Where's that memo that Hunter wrote found specifically? What was the date and time? Where was Hunter living at that time? Let's go check out that location. You issue search warrants. Um, I mean, if we were doing this in the normal course, not this DOJ, not this FBI, not these government gangsters, but the normal course of a uniform system of justice, that's what you do. One question they just can't answer. Where did Hunter Biden get that information? So, and just to be, just to be 100% clear here, we don't know for sure that what's in that document is classified information. We, we just don't know. Maybe someone, maybe it was declassified. Maybe it came from some other source and it just happens to look a lot like it, right? We, we don't know that for sure. But my, my thought is here that it would probably be pretty easy to figure that out at this point, it's, right? No, no, I think they've figured it out. Mm -hmm. They've had that document for the entire time they've had the laptop. Right. The, the investigators that looked at it figured it out and said, okay, we have to go hunt this thing down. Where did it come from? Right. And the reason, I'm sure our audience is saying, well, why doesn't Cash comment on the specific bullet points in the document? because I don't want the FBI showing up at my door saying you were talking about classified information. So I'm talking about it from a macro level, from just a whole uh, sort of a setback standpoint to say, um, in my experience, in my 16 years in government, doing intelligence work, running the intelligence community, being a federal prosecutor, running counterterrorism and being chief of staff of DOD, that information's classified or it came from a classified source specifically or classified document. Basically, what you're saying here, and I think it's pretty significant, is that it, in all likelihood, it was, this was identified as classified information, and that was actually the origination of this whole classified piece. This is the th our working theory here. Let's see what happens. Yeah, it's our working yeah. theory. And, and the other thing I'll just say, Jan, is it's not like this is the only memo. There's no way. I mean, you're right. I don't know for sure because I haven't exploited Hunter Biden's laptop. But somebody did. And that content and information is out there. So wait for the next round of memos to be released. Now you know that the online sleuths are going to get their hands on whatever's out there about the Hunter Biden laptop because the Hunter Biden laptop information is out there in the public realm. So they can go through it. So I think we're going to see more memos and more questions. We are learning of it now. The question is, when did the FBI and DOJ find out about it? And what did they do when they found out about it? And that goes to the origination document that I was talking about on the last show, the electronic communication, the EC, that became famous during Russiagate. You remember the EC, the electronic communication that we finally subpoenaed from DOJ, that Peter Strzok had authored himself, that was partially redacted, that showed the origination of the Russiagate investigation and blew open the case because it shattered their narrative that uh, we were, they were looking into portraying Donald Trump as a Russian asset. Well, we need that document in this case.
it exists somewhere in the FBI and DOJ. The one thing these government gangsters, as I call them, always do is write down by the book how they start an investigation. Where they get caught is where they try to do a cover-up and reverse engineer it, which is what I think they're doing with Hunter Biden now. So now you have Hunter Biden front and center again. And why he hasn't been in a grand jury or subpoenaed is beyond me. Um, why his associates haven't um, been impaneled. Maybe they have. I just don't know. But you would think the way that this media cycle operates, we would at least have an idea of that. And we, we do know is this, this investigation of Hunter Biden has been going on for almost two years, if not longer, right, by the U.S. attorney in Delaware. So the other question I have is for the likes of former Attorney General Bill Barr. You had this information. You had Hunter Biden's laptop. You had the ability to put FBI personnel on this specifically and investigate this matter. But he didn't do it. He left the DOJ having this matter totally unresolved and he's out there on his book tour. And I think it's an abject failure of the number one law enforcement officer in the country to go in and investigate this matter, especially when it involves classified information. And the reason I'm saying it dates back to the under Bill Barr's tenureship is because if we can prove that it does, then it shows that the cover-up goes back years. And unfortunately, I'm not taking a victory lap on this one. I'm saying it's tragic that the DOJ has operated in this fashion since and before Russiagate and Comey and Rosenstein and Ray um, and Barr and all these people that have followed them for protecting the institution. And that's where my problem is. And that's what we've been working to expose that corruption. And let's see if this subcommittee gets this origination document so we have a date as to when the first piece of classified information was found on Hunter Biden's laptop. Let's see. <laughs> and I think, uh, Cash, I think it's time for our shout out. This week's shout out goes to Nancy Brenner. Thanks so much for your kind words on our comments board for Cash's Corner. And thank you everybody who leaves messages to us and participates in the live chat. We truly appreciate your support. The audience is growing by the week and we can't wait to keep going with our program. For now, we'll see you next week on Cash's Corner. <laughs>